In her 1963 poem, Protestant Easter, Anne Sexton describes her Congregationalist upbringing this way. Alleluia, they sing. They don't know. They don't care if he was hiding or flying. Well, it doesn't matter how he got there. It matters where he was going. The important thing for me is that I'm wearing white gloves. I always sit straight. I keep on looking at the ceiling. And about Jesus, they couldn't be sure of it. Not so sure of it, anyhow. So they decided to become Protestants. Those are the people that sing. With all due respect to Anne Sexton, who in spite of this poem remains one of my favorite poets, I think she gives short shrift to the history and substance of New England Congregationalism. After all, the first members of this congregation did not flee England for North America because they couldn't be sure about Jesus. In April 1638, 500 Puritans under the leadership of Reverend John Davenport and Governor Theophilus Eaton arrived in the homeland of the Quinnipiac people, the land we now know as New Haven, Connecticut, on the ship the Hector. This group of nonconformist Christians came from many walks of life, but what they shared was a commitment to further reforming the Church of England, to making the Christian faith more simple, more accessible, and less hierarchical, at least in the context of their time and place. On Sunday, April 25th, 1638, these settlers met under a large oak tree, roughly at what is today the intersection of College and George Streets, to hold the first Christian worship service in New Haven. Davenport preached on Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, which reads, in the languages of the Geneva Bible he would have read from, Then was Jesus led aside of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. This scene is depicted, albeit in a somewhat idealized manner, in the Tiffany window above us. The women and men who founded this congregation were radicals, and one of their most radical acts took place on August 22, 1639, when they came together to form a new church and elected John Davenport as their minister. On that day, two lay members of this newly formed congregation placed their hands on John Davenport and declared, We ordain thee to be pastor unto this church of Christ. Now, Reverend Davenport was educated at Oxford. He had been ordained a priest by a bishop of the Church of England in an elaborate ceremony. He had even served as the vicar of a church in London. However, for the first members of this new congregation, these credentials were irrelevant and his earlier ordination by a bishop was entirely invalid. This church began when a handful of ordinary Christians came together to covenant with God and one another, to call a minister of their own choosing, and to ordain him themselves. Where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The first members of this congregation took the Lord Jesus at his word. So after the Puritans arrived here, formed a congregation, and ordained their first minister, what did their worship services look like? you might be surprised to learn that they were not entirely unlike our own. Surveying what were ancient sources even then, Reverend Leonard Bacon, in A History of This Congregation, published in 1839, writes, Every Sabbath they came together at the beat of the drum. About nine o'clock or before, the pastor began with solemn prayer, continuing about a quarter of an hour. The teacher, what we would call the associate pastor today, then read and expounded a chapter. Then a psalm was sung, the lines being given out by the ruling elder, what we would call a senior deacon today. After that, the pastor delivered his sermon, not written out in full, but from notes enlarged upon in speaking. In this church, at an early period, it was customary for the congregation to rise while the preacher read his text. This was a token of reverence for the word of God. 
After the sermon, the teacher concluded with prayer and a blessing. Once a month, the Lord's Supper was celebrated at the close of the morning service, the pastor, teacher, and ruling elder sitting together at the communion table. The assembly, having convened again for the exercises of the afternoon at about two o'clock, and the pastor having commenced as in the morning with prayer and a psalm having been sung as before, another prayer was offered by the teacher, who then preached as the pastor did in the morning and prayed again. Then, if there was any occasion, baptism was administered by either the pastor or the teacher. Next in the order of services was the contribution made every Lord's Day to the treasury of the church. One of the deacons rising in his place would say, Brethren of the congregation, now there is time left for contribution. Wherefore, as God hath prospered you, so freely offer. The contribution was received not by passing a box from seat to seat, but first the magistrates and the principal gentlemen, then the elders, and then the congregation generally came up to the deacon's seat. Each individual contributed either money or a written promise to pay some certain amount or anything else that was convenient and proper. Money and subscriptions were placed in the contribution box. Other offerings were laid before the deacons. It may be that some of the ancient silver cups now used in our monthly communion were given in this way. After the contribution, the assembly being not yet dismissed, if there were any members to be admitted into the church, or if there were cases of offense and discipline to be acted upon by the church, such things were attended to, and then another psalm was sung, and the pastor closed the services with prayer and the blessing. After reading this text for the first time, I began to daydream about the last day in the resurrection and an accompanying visit from the founders of this congregation. It is, I know, difficult to keep hope about these things alive in a secular age, but I suspect our doubts arise from the fact that we are links in a long chain extending from the ascension to judgment day. How near or far we are to the end of that chain, only the heavens know. But as Peter tells us, with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. And so I imagine the first members of this congregation being raised up on the last day. And why would it the last day be on a Sunday? And why would it the resurrection of the dead commence at, say, 10 a.m. Eastern, Earth time? Perhaps on their way to the seat of judgment, the four mothers and four fathers of this congregation would climb up the steps from the crypt or step in from a New Haven green where they are among the roughly 5,000 individuals buried there to take a peek at how their congregation has changed over the centuries. Of course, they wouldn't recognize our current meeting house, erected in 1814 with its great spire, upholstered box pews, ornate pulpit and stained glass window. The first meeting house was little more than a log cabin with plain wood benches and a slightly elevated pulpit. Yet the inscription around our entrance states, in an English not so different from their own, what this building is and who the people inside of it are. Slipping in and taking their seats in the back rows according to their social rank with men on one side and women on the other, as was their custom, they'd likely be frightened by the boom of the organ, or otherwise wonder what great ship got it across the treacherous Atlantic from London. They'd be disturbed by the hymns we sing and the instruments that Karen plays for us, much preferring the unaccompanied psalms they crooned in unison from the Bay Psalm book. They'd be irritated by the lack of extemporaneous prayer, and frankly horrified by our bulletins with their beautifully crafted scripts. The service itself would likely be too short for their taste, although I suspect that there would be some among them silently applauding the fact that we no longer stand through three-hour sermons. 
After the service, perhaps they'd stick around for coffee hour. Not that one needs much caffeine after 400 years of rest. With the final revelation at hand, they might take some small comfort in the fact that those things about which they had been deadly wrong in their time, their church had been at the forefront of changing. Over coffee, we could tell them about how our congregation had first committed itself to the cause of abolition in 1790, when the Society for Promoting Freedom met in our third meeting house, and our minister, Reverend Joseph Dana, preached passionately against the traffic in the souls of men. We could tell them about how, in 1832, our congregation invited Cherokee leaders to speak out from this very pulpit against their people's removal from their homeland at the hands of the federal government. We could tell them about how our congregation has championed civil rights, women's rights, and marriage equality. We could tell them how we continue to speak out against racial injustice and illegal wars and occupations. We could tell them about our efforts to uplift New Haven residents facing food and housing insecurity. Then, having gotten better acquainted with our visitors from what Shakespeare called the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, we could show them the many treasures our church has accumulated over the centuries. We could ask them whether Reverend Davenport ever owned the Davenport Cup. We could see for ourselves whether their depiction in this Tiffany window looks anything like them. Maybe we could ask them to reenact the scene for a social media post. We could show them the Fisk organ and how it doesn't require someone to continuously pump it while it's being played, but we'd probably want to set them straight about witchcraft first. Yet the greatest treasure we could show them is the small but committed group of people practicing the simple traditions, however slightly modified, and striving to live out and perfect the reformed faith that they first brought to this place almost 400 years ago in a self-governing congregation with no earthly authority over it but scripture, and no head but the Lord Jesus Christ.